Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Hey, greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where D-Base and Rebecca are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. Rebecca, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? Hey, better than I deserve. Today is May 7th, 2023. This is episode 58, where we're going to talk about LDS terminology updates, Community of Christ World Conference report, a BYU transgender controversy, sacred garments made in Chinese sweatshops, and Tucker Carlson. He wants us to be good Mormons. we got a big episode, don't we? Yeah, there was a lot, a lot to cover, and we're going to do it. Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at mormonnewsroundup.org, or you can send me an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org, and we'll link to all this in our show notes. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with you? Well, let's see. I run The Good Book Club. You can join us on Facebook. You can look for us there or on Instagram. I also have a podcast called Mormonish, and you can find us on any podcast platform or on YouTube or on Facebook, or on Instagram. Oh, wonderful. And if you want to support the uh, Mormon News Roundup, you can uh, become a supporter at Patreon. We have a lot of bonus content there for you. That does bring us to our Mormon News Roundup Joke of the Week. And uh, you got that for us, don't you, Rebecca? I have the Joke of the Week. So the Joke of the Week is, why are so many Mormons watching porn? I, I, I hesitate to venture a guess. I don't know. They aren't anymore. Yeah, that's true. We are going to. That's that is true. We are. We'll find get out more that. about that joke later. Yes. Yes, that's true. They are. They're not doing it anymore. Um, and we'll cover that a little bit more in the episode. So uh, some some of the uh, first our first article here is that the Mormon News Weekly Venture it's coming to an end. And this was supposed to be here between uh, Patrick Mason. Um, who's a professor uh, at Utah State University, um, husband, dad, professor, author, also John DeLynn, the host of Mormon Stories, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the CEO of the Open Stories Foundation, I believe that is his title, and also Jana Reese, the author of The Next Mormons, Flunking Sainthood, and a couple of other things. They were supposed to put together a joint venture here called the Mormon News Weekly, and it was announced just a couple of days ago here on May 1st that uh, the reason that that uh, endeavor did not uh, take hold is because uh, Patrick Mason pulled out. Uh, What happened, Rebecca? Well, I think he did a couple episodes, and I think he started to get, as he said himself, some pretty strong pushback. Uh, I think mostly I got the impression from faithful members who really thought it was probably something that he should not be doing. I know he talked about how the Midnight Mormons had done an episode about him being on that program and and saying um, that he probably should not be on it, giving uh, credibility to John Delaney shouldn't be on there. So I think he got a lot of pushback. And then I think he started getting pushback as he described in his own words from friends and colleagues um, who said they felt when he turned toward this kind of interaction, perhaps with John Delaney, that he was turning away from them. And he just made the decision in best interest for him and his family that he would just not continue with the program. Yeah. And uh, first of all, I would like to say, you know, I wish them the very best. But all joking aside, you know, no one competes with the Mormon News Roundup. That's all I can. <laughs> you know, maybe they, 
maybe they just listen to this podcast and realize that no one can compare to this humble endeavor. I'm joking here, but uh, I am amused here a little bit by some of the comments section. When I read the comments, I hear people saying, oh, this is a great idea. If only someone could put something like that together. And also, mm, gee whiz, I wonder um, if it sounds like a great endeavor, but you know, nobody can put something like this together. I'm just amazed that um, I guess people are just not necessarily aware of this podcast. They're not. And now it's your moment to shine. Fill the void. That's how most people become famous. There's a gap or a void and somebody steps in to fill it. So let's get the word out there, everybody. Mormon News Roundup, filling the void one broadcast at a time. Yeah, I did invite, I did reach out to Patrick Mason and I told him that uh, he'd be welcome to come on our podcast to fill that gap in his own heart because apparently he loves Mormon news and he does not have an outlet. And also maybe he can get right with the Lord by uh, coming on this podcast. Not sure about that. But the first step, uh, you know, towards, uh, you know, getting out there is to come on the podcast. So, you know, I, I just, I wish them the very best because, you know, Rebecca, as you know, we've had, um, you know, we've had as communicated members, non-members, fundamentalist members. Um, we've had very so quote unquote faithful people. In fact, we had a couple of months ago we had Jim Bennett, Rick yep. Bennett, and Greg Matson, all very faithful members of the church who came onto this podcast. And uh, we've had repeat members. We've had everybody on. So I know the weekly Mormon News Roundup. They had I don't know. I, I guess I'm just a seedless podcaster, and those are all A-list personalities. I understand, mm. but we're trying to do what they failed to do. That's right. And you actually are doing it because you do have guests from the entire gamut of the Mormon to faithful to post-Mormon world and everybody gets along and everybody talks about news stories. So you literally have already been doing what they were trying to do for over a year now. So I wish that more people in all seriousness would uh, know more about your program because you are accomplishing what they set out to do. <laughs> As we say, no one hollowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. Now, we want to give you a couple of updates here, Rebecca, of uh, the Lori Avalo trial. Um, it is continuing, and I found one uh, highlight here that I want to play from you. Um, we, uh, obviously, we could spend an entire episode on this, but, you know, I am a little bit surprised here that the quote-unquote mainstream media is not covering this trial more than it is. We're only getting some news nation, and, um, you know, the, they're, we're not seeing CNN out there. We're not seeing Fox News out there. But um, this is a pretty good summary here of what happened this week, and I just want to play this and uh, get some reaction. I want to uh, bring in someone now who knows a lot about prosecuting a criminal case. Adam Levy served two terms as New York State District Attorney. He's going to be one of three judges on the new show Tribunal Justice, which premieres on Amazon Freebie on June the 9th. Okay, Judge. Um, I'm going to leave it to you since the defense attorneys didn't do much. Is it, Why wouldn't they right out of the gate on cross, even though it's a DNA expert, why wouldn't they say, would it be unusual for a mother to have a hair located near her seven-year-old child and his jammies and his bed? Why wouldn't they do that? You know, I, I couldn't think of a reason why they wouldn't do it because uh, clearly it's their first opportunity to let the jury know that there are alternative explanations as to why that DNA uh, and the hair could have gotten on, on, the, on the duct tape. Now, just because they didn't do it during cross does not mean that they will not uh, mention it over and over again on their summation. That's oftentimes where the defense is going to try to tie all these loose ends and try to uh, to establish that that reasonable doubt uh, is on summation. And that may be their strategy. Uh, however, they could have done both. And, and I couldn't I, I don't know why they didn't. So 
I'm still waiting for a lot more of these big walloping days because mm -hmm. we're in the, the final stretch, right? I think we're looking at possibly it uh, wrapping up the prosecution's case, wrapping up this week. So what do you think her best defense is going to be at this point? Um, I mean, we've heard a lot about Chad. We've heard a lot about Alex looking terribly, terribly guilty. But we have not had that super nexus that brings her into the conspiracy and then has her committing some act in furtherance of the conspiracy. What do you think her best defense is? Well, I completely disagree with those people that would suggest that uh, that that it's Alex that put her up to this and she was afraid of Alex. I believe Alex was dead already as of Ju uh, December of 2019. Uh, and the bodies were found in June uh, of 2020, my recollection. And so she couldn't be afraid of Alex in June of 2020 because he's already dead. And if he was the one who she believed murdered the children, she would have said something about Alex. She didn't. So in, in my opinion, it doesn't do any good to point the finger at Alex. That's going to fall flat. The only real defense that I think she has would be to say that that she was afraid of, of Chad, of her husband, that he was the one who was involved, that she was afraid of him killing her. Um, that would seem to be the only thing that, that I would think would, uh, you know, could, could ensure, uh, you know, that she walks free if the jury bought it. The problem is there are photographs and videos of them together. Uh, there's no getting married uh, in Hawaii. There, there's, there's no way, in my opinion, that a jury is going to, who has already seen these photographs, is going to believe that Lori Vallow was legitimately afraid of her husband. Uh, and uh, right, I just because don't they're it. dancing on the beach and they're telling the um, rental agencies in Hawaii, we don't have kids, we won't be, we don't have any, we're empty nesters, and they were in complete bliss. So I think you're and right about one, that. And not one, and not one single witness has come forward to say that Lori told them that that she was afraid of Chad right. at any time whatsoever. Never so, uh, Rebecca, there, there we have it. What is we've had three weeks of prosecution. The prosecution is just about to wrap things up. You know, we have uh, Lori. Her DNA is on the duct tape um, on the child's body. And, and what is the defense? See, this has all been prosecution. We haven't heard anything from the defense yet. Is she going to blame it on Alex? Is she supposed to blame it on Chad? The problem here is that she's got pictures of herself getting married and happy bliss. How are you going to say that my husband was some kind of a monster and, and, and forced me into this when you're getting married on the beach with him in Hawaii? And same with Alex. She doesn't mention to anyone that Alex was a, was a problem. What is the defense on this going to be? I think her defense attorney has a very difficult road ahead because I do not believe she really has a defense and she knows it. I'm not even sure she wants one. If you listen to the phone call that was taped between Lori and her sister, where her sister hysterically kept asking Lori, you know, I love you. I've defended you. Give me something that I can use that I can tell people. Tell me a reason. Exactly like you were just saying, tell me that Chad forced you. Tell me something. And all Lori said in just this chilling voice is you couldn't understand. No one knows. You don't get it. So I believe she's very much in a fantasy world um, still that she's this otherworldly being, this goddess. She's on a mission of epic cosmic proportion, and her children were just collateral damage in that as she had to get rid of their mortal bodies to save 
their soul. I know it's this whole big convoluted fairy tale. And so I don't believe that she even is probably participating in a defense because she, I believe, believes in what she did. And I just hope that she never wakes up from that fantasy because can you imagine waking up someday and realizing, and her sister kept saying in the phone call, is there anything that any of us could tell you to show you you've been deceived? You know, I, but no, she was very, she was calm as anything, just saying, nope, you don't understand. You don't know. It's bigger than you. You know, she's just in another world. So if she's that way with her defense attorney, I think all they can do is maybe make a case that there was more influence from Chad. Maybe he brainwashed her. Maybe it was a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. But again, that dancing on the beach and, and that other phone call, I'm sure most of your viewers and listeners have heard it. The most chilling part, I thought, is how the sister kept saying, you were dancing and your children were in the ground and you knew it. I mean, it's just a non-human reaction that none of us can even imagine. So I think it's just out of a realm that we can understand at this point. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is that the death penalty is off the table in this particular mm -hmm. case. And, of course, Chad and Lori, are, they're going to be tried separately on the same three charges here. With the death penalty off the table, what are we fighting for? Because the evidence is so overwhelming. What is the defense really even going to say? There's nothing to participate in. There's, exactly. just, there's really almost no chance in this. And I just want to bring this up as well, that the church for the first time, you know, what does this have to do with the church? First of all, we know that uh, Chad Daybell is an excommunicated member. We don't know if Lori is because Chad Daybell's excommunication was linked to court TV last week. We, we still don't. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows unless it's her state president or bishop if Lori Vallow is still a member of the church. Because remember, you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, so anyway, the church has responded for the first time, has covered the, the Lori Vallow trial through the Deseret News, although there has been KSL articles prior to this. But usually when the church weighs in in these uh, particular cases, they have some kind of an editorial spin that they want to put it on. But when you read through this case here, it's very uh, the, the, the church's response to this. It's very interesting because the church is very center of mass on this. They're not painting her as an excommunicated member or disaffiliated. They're not trying to um, remove, they're not trying to put space in between Laurie Vallow and the church. It's a pretty straightaway article, which I thought for sure that what we would see would be the church distancing themselves as much as possible from oh, Lori yeah. and Chad. Yep, I think so too, because a lot of people believe at the core of their actions, of course, were doctrines that they obviously spun out of control to a whole nother level, multiple mortalities, plural probations, all of that. Our podcast is doing an episode on that because it's a very little known part of what Joseph Smith was interested in and Eliza R. Snow early in the day. But that's, you know, some of the basis for some of their ideas, past lives, married before she was married to Moroni. I mean, just things like that. The church wants nothing to do with that because that isn't the church. That's somebody taking some of these core old beliefs and spinning them out of control. So, yeah, it is interesting that but I, I guess people at this point, everyone knows there's a connection to Mormonism. From, so maybe going straight at it like that, just very matter of factly is, is the way to do it. And that's why also we've only had one article in three weeks. Um, uh, so that the church basically, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't get a lot more articles. The church, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to cover this because this is a national news story where we're not going to bring up his church affiliation. The fact that she went to the temple the day prior, her and Chad, to the day prior the children's yeah. appearances. We're not going to mention that. Mm -mm. And after. she went to, They went to the temple after and before. Just, again, a different world, a different reality that they're in. Yeah, so that's that's uh, it's a, we're going to be looking forward to. I'm very much looking forward to next week when we hear 
what is the defense uh, going to be? Because, you know, if you think back to Jody Arias, you know, Jody Arias, the, the, the evidence was so overwhelming. And we're like, well, what is she going to say? Well, she said that Travis Alexander, who was a very faithful Mormon, by the way, she said that he was trying, he was an abuser and he was trying to hurt her. Mm-hmm. That's why it was self-defense. Mm-hmm. And everyone was just completely shocked by that. That's why I'm wondering next week what is going to happen to the defense. Is yeah. it going to be some kind of a shocking defense or are they just going to lay down and say, you know what, we're already headed for life in prison and there's really nothing that we can do. Any last thoughts yeah. on this one? I think it could go either way, but I agree. Next, I think we all knew the, the past weeks were going to be what they were going to be. I mean, we didn't know exactly what was going to be revealed, but we, we knew there would be things made clear. But <clears> you're right. It's completely nebulous what is going to happen next week with the defense. It literally could be a huge bombshell out of the gate. Or it could just basically be, eh, you know. <laughs> and I'm actually more interested in Chad's trial, although, you know, because that is going to be absolutely fascinating, too. So absolutely. very interesting news going forward. Yeah. Now, our next article here, and this is a very important article here. This is from the Boy Scouts. And I do want to read quite a bit of this, Rebecca. Um, the Boy Scouts of America now cre- can now create the $2.4 billion fund to pay claims for scouts who survived abuse. A bankruptcy expert explains next. Now, this has been a very very confusing process. It's very opaque because the church is not releasing any information about this. And a lot of this is behind closed doors. There's we, we just don't have the information that we need. This is the best article that uh, one of my uh, Patreon supporters pointed to me to this, and it's really, really good. I do want to read a little bit of it. So back uh, just a couple of days ago, April 19, 2023, the Boy Scouts of America declared that it has exited its bankruptcy clay, case after clearing one of the last legal hurdles. And some insurance companies and sex abuse claimants objected the Boy Scouts plan to pay uh, to pay claimants, but the third U.S. Uh, District Court of Appeals held that the plan can go ahead. So there's 82,000 scouts, and there's going to be 2.5 billion dollars. And this is for everyone who's been abused in the scouting program, including LDS scouting program, for the last 80 years. Now, uh, they, the BSA, the Boy Scouts of America, filed for bankruptcy back in February 2022, and that halted the lawsuits. But now they've emerged from bankruptcy, so those lawsuits can now go forward. So there's been 85,000 scouts here who were abused. Now, a 10,000 of them went ahead and accepted the $3,500 payout. You can say, I want my money now, and I won't won't wait for litigation or anything else that's going to take place. About 10,000 scouts have opted for that $3,500. Now, just a couple of other things here. So this the bankruptcy case is going to be, um, they're going to create a settlement of a trust and two retired judges and a committee made up of lawyers who represent sex abuse claimants will administer the trust. This is the largest sex abuse compensation fund ever in the United States, and it'll be operated independently by those two judges who are going to take that $2.5 billion and act as trustees to pay out all of the claims. Now, the church here, one last note here, the church here, it says it will contribute $250 million to the fund. Now, it doesn't say that it has so far, but it says that it will. So uh, this is very interesting here um, as to who is getting what and obviously a really troubling, uh, troubling case. I know you read this article, Rebecca. What are your thoughts? Yeah, again, it was a little confusing. I think we remember that article from before where the church was going to pay money and then some of the stipulations to the wording. Um, then they took the money away or a judge said the wording's not going to fly. So they withdrew the money. So it's a lot That's of back right. and forth that I think most people can't quite understand. But the bottom line is 85,000, you know, impacted and abused um, a fraction of those taking a payment because the rest I think believe their abuse was at a level where they can definitely 
you know, litigate and receive some compensation for it. So, and I also think it means that the church will be in the news for a very long time as these cases kind of trickle forward. I think that, that they're not going to be able to get out from under this. It's going to be there for a long time. Yes, and this is at one point of this article. It says that payments will not start to flow until the trust determines the payment amount of every single claim. And if the fund is not big enough to pay every claim in full, the trust will reduce the amount of each claim to reflect the estimated shortfall. So they have to go through every single claim, all, eight, all the 75000 80000 that are left, figure out the monetary damage amount, then tally all that up, you know, uh, see if it is more than $2.5 billion or less, and they'll see whether they'll have to reduce some of those payments. That means that these two judges have got to go through individually the court, you know, the, the, the cases of 80,000 people. This is going to take a long, long yeah. time. By the way, you see the ticker on the bottom of the screen? Uh-huh. I got that ticker going, so I'm figuring. Yeah, no, that's great. Boy, this is this is really top-notch, high gear here, well, I'm telling you. It's supposed to be a news <laughs> program, right? So, so our next article here, Rebecca, is uh, this is a very surprising that just hit a couple of days ago. So this is from the Desert News editorial page. Tucker Carlson, you know, the famed uh, uh, Fox News uh, host there who recently lost his job. He wants you to have Mormon levels of kids. To, uh, he wants you to, Tucker Carlson wants you to be a good Mormon. This is a very, this is a shock to me. What is happening here? I was very confused by this article. I mean, he's been defrocked lately, uh, you know, recently, if I can use that word. And so now he's on there talking about, you know, how to live a good life, how to be a happy person. And he talks about getting married early. Don't let anything don't let anything stand in your way like money or education. Get married. It sounds very familiar. It sounds kind of like what I was taught in young women's back in the 80s. But then he says, have lots of kids. That'll increase your happiness level. Have a Mormon level of kids. So lots and lots of kids. Uh, it is very interesting why he even found himself or considered himself to be in a position to weigh in on all of this. But those are his thoughts on happiness. <laughs> you know, I just want to read one little section here from this. Uh, and he said this is his particular comments, which he delivered shortly before he was fired. He said, quote, get married and have a ton of kids. Get married when you're too young. Have more kids than you can afford. Take mm -hmm. a job you're not qualified for. Live boldly. Stop getting high. Stop doing anything that blurs your vision or makes time go faster. Wasting time is the only thing you can't get back. Any time I waste it is really bitter for me because it's finite. And I want to experience my life as fully as I possibly can. I think that starts with having a ton of kids, like way more, like Mormon level of kids. I mean that, end quote. Uh, what's your reaction to Tucker Carlson's uh, advice for us? Well, I guess I should have looked this up, but how many kids does he have himself? <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't Because I kind of feel like people that tell you to have boatloads of kids maybe don't have boatloads of kids. And when they talk to someone who do, who, you know, does have that many, it's, it's, it's not as easy as that, Tucker. I think that's what I'll say. All those things that you threw out there, none of those are as easy as you think and problematic in many ways. So I'm not it, saying there isn't joy, but... That's not an easy road, what you described. It's just very odd for me to be receiving advice from, we have Tucker Carlson's emails from the Dominion voting scandal, which is where he used some really crude words to describe his mm -hmm. female bosses in particular, called them the C word. He, there was a lot of racist undertones. We're, now, the Deseret News is pulling from someone who's really been disgraced for really having some reprehensible values. 
and we're cherry picking the one part of his ideology that lines up with Mormon theology, and then we're espousing that as some as, as something that's that's good or 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 noteworthy. Why are we taking a fallen uh, somebody who's fallen from grace, who's had very very poor morals, and um, why are we putting him up on a pedestal like we should be following his advice? It is very strange advice because uh, speaking of young women's in the 80s, I also remember sort of a little object lesson that went around where they would bake a pan of brownies and then they would tell you, do you want a brownie if you know that there's even a tiny bit of, you know, doggy do in it, right? The idea that you can't cherry pick something wonderful somebody said, you have to take the whole person, the whole package. And if there's a tiny little piece of something in, you know, his character that doesn't add up, you should disregard everything he says. So this is the opposite. It seems like they did pull out just the one small thing that he said that might align like you described with uh, the LDS values and they you know made a big show of that so it does seem very strange because the other rule is kind of like nope throw everything out if there's even one thing amiss throw it all out one swear word in a movie throw the whole movie out that kind of an idea yeah I also found this tweet that went along with this from Taylor Petrie it's and he he tweets this out he says it seems incredibly poor judgment to publish someone who's recently fired from the Deseret News for racism to approvingly write about a racist recently fired from Fox so this is important here the one who did the editorial here um, Ms. Morley she was fired from Deseret News um, editorial uh, the, co the column page and she was demoted to only doing occasional editorials like this so we have literally two people who were demoted from their current positions that we're trotting out here to espouse uh, some niche LDS theology that was really popular back when Spencer Kimball was the right. president that talked about have lots of kids have it doesn't you know have tons of them have them when you're young I don't care if you can afford it it's like you know we're hearkening back to the 80s here and we're using really really bad spokesmen for the message I just this 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 isn't the right spokesperson. This isn't the right message. This isn't the right time. This isn't this whole thing is not good. Amen. <laughs> I agree with what you said. Maybe they feel a kinship to each other. I don't know. Both demoted. They have a lot in common, but it almost seems like a Hail Mary. Oh, we'll throw this out here. It'll make me look like a good guy. It'll make me look like a good writer if I put this out there. So maybe there's sort of a hidden agenda to putting that forward. I, I know a lot of people like the far right Fox News uh, editorial opinion pages, and there's a, people have a lot of solidarity with Tucker Carlson. Some people feel that he was unjustly fired and that he has a real big following, and maybe the church is trying to capitalize on it. This is the wrong person to try to capitalize on that. You know, he, Tucker Carlson is not. He's not somebody who was unjustly fired. He, he there's we know what his emails were. He had very negative interactions in his personal life. He was fired for a reason. This this isn't someone that we should be aligning with as a church, as, as someone who should be we should be guiding our morals based on what Tucker Carlson said. That's just a fundamental fact. Now, our, our next article here is from the Come Follow Me manual here. And I found this to be very interesting. Changes are coming to the Come Follow Me in 2024. And uh, the article here written by Ryan Jensen on the 30th of April 2023 says, consolidation of teaching resources aimed at continuing the simplification of teaching the gospel at home and church. So what's happening with this article here, Rebecca? Well, in the past, we've had a manual sort of tailored to each age. Um, I was a primary teacher for a long time, so they have a manual for the little guys. They have a manual for, you know, the 10-year-olds. They have a teenage manual for Sunday school. They have a Relief Society manual. They have a priesthood manual, all these things. 
Well, I think some of these manuals were problematic. In, in recent years, uh, things have slipped by. There have been some white and delightsome quotes. There have been some interracial marriage quotes that were still in the manuals. I know when I taught primary, there were some very disturbing stories from like the 30s or 40s about prophets that I would try to paraphrase them for the kids because I thought I needed to teach out of the manual and their eyes would get huge because it just didn't translate to today, to kids today. So I understand what they're trying to do. They're now going to have one manual, um, one manual she'll rule them all right <laughs> like lord of the rings and, <laughs> yeah. yes i'm that geeky and uh so they're going to have one manual that everyone will be able to use um, is written at sort of a fourth grade level is kind of what i understand so really there won't be too much to change but my thoughts on the manual it's going to be one manual so i'm trying wow. to picture uh, somebody who teaches the four-year-olds and here they are with a manual that's also being used that day in Relief Society. Now, are they going to take the time to really go through the manual and then create a lesson plan that's age appropriate? I don't know. They may just read the title. This is probably what I would do. They may read the title and then they may just kind of come up with their own thing. So I think we may be headed back to the days when I was in primary where people did tell their own faith promoting stories, rumors, exciting events, and they kind of made up their own curriculum. So I feel that maybe people will have almost less correlated uh, lesson material because people are going to go rogue. They're going to create their own lessons to make them age appropriate. Yeah, I mean, one thing about this is that you're going to have five-year-olds and 90-year-olds all using the same manual. You know, there's supposed to be the idea, the concept of when, you know, uh, when I go to churches, you have the milk before meat sort of situation. You know, 90-year-olds, they're supposed to be able to handle the meat of the gospel, have, you know, the more interesting conversations, get into deeper theology, be able to, I don't know, uh, take things to the next level whereas a five-year-old you know they're not ready for every single gospel content well this basically says that you know there is no meat everyone is going to be feeding at the same trough the same lesson you get when you're five you'll receive that same lesson again when you're 90. 85 years of the same message over and over and people are well they're saying you know why are people leaving the churches because they're not finding excitement they're not finding interest they're not finding additional light and knowledge that the father was supposed to send to us well if you're using the same manual for 85 years that's a real problem it is a problem and i feel it is finally the culminating result of correlation honestly it, i'm old enough to remember pre-correlation and there were some dynamic exciting lessons there were um, extra materials there were all kinds of things discussed correlation that starts to end and now we're at the pinnacle we've got one manual for everybody like you said a three-year-old a 90-year-old it's going to be the same your entire life and i don't there is no meat like you said there really isn't and people i believe are just going to be bored to tears this really reminds me a lot of uh, Warren Jaffs, you know, the FLDS prophet who ran the mm -hmm. Alpha School in Sandy, Utah for many years. And he gave the same devotional lessons for everyone in that school who was from age five all the way to age 18. Everyone gets the same message. That's that's a, that's a common tactic. 
And just one other thing, you know, um, you know, I was a classroom teacher for many, many years. My degrees are in education, so I guess I can weigh into this maybe a little bit better than some of my other um, <laughs> topics where I'm really out in right field and I have no credentials. But, you know, there comes to, there's a thing called differentiation, which is when you're in a classroom, let's say you have a classroom that has 30, 12 year olds, you know, the, the difference between your best learner and your worst learner, your smartest person and your not smartest person, that can be incredibly wide, even with the same age group of only 30 mm -hmm. people. If you're trying to have a classroom that's basically from five-year-olds to 90-year-olds, the difference in knowledge, your, the ability to differentiate those lessons is going to be absolutely impossible. Yeah, I think so too. And I worked for a company at one point where we did gather materials for textbooks for children of different ages. And you're right, it was like a K through 12. And everywhere else, they take great care to tailor lessons to learning styles age levels, it makes a big difference. Uh, you know, what's interesting to a, a 12th grader could be terrifying to a kindergartner. You know, there are levels. And that's why I say the manual's not gonna do this anymore. They may as well just put out an outline that says, talk about the plan of salvation today. And then again, up to the individual teachers. So there's gonna be a lot of rogue elements. It, it's gonna be really interesting to watch if it works or not. Absolutely. Now, our next article here is uh, last week was the uh, Community of Christ World Conference, which they only hold every three years. And it just concluded this last Sunday. It was six uh, days in a row, mostly night. Uh, I think they had about nine, eight or nine sessions, each of which are about two hours long. And uh, let's just uh, give you the highlights of what happened here. It was in Independence, Missouri, wrapped up uh, last uh, Friday afternoon. There was approximately 1,800 delegates who went to the conference. So each congregation, you vote for your delegate who goes and uh, represents you kind of like an American uh, primary uh, situation, you know, kind of like some states, especially Utah, does a primary situation here. And, uh, you know, the, well, a couple of the takeaways here that uh, I think the highlight of the takeaway was there's a new president of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, Mareva Arnaud of French Polynesia. She's the first non-native English speaker in that role. And she's also one of six women who are part of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. They also weighed in on, um, you know, uh, the climate emergency. All community Christ jurisdictions are uh, are encouraged to be responsible for reducing climate, uh, excuse me, carbon emissions. Um, they had uh, racial justice that was voted upon. Um, you know, they talked about uh, the marriage, how their view of marriage, which is generally monogamous, although in some uh, countries where there are polygamists, um, uh, where there's polygamy, they do allow polygamy in their church. Uh, recommend they recommended removing Doctrine of Covenant section 116, but I do not, I don't think that it passed. And there was a couple of other things that uh, were uh, presented, but uh, yeah, that's the, basically the highlights here of uh, what happened in the World Conference. Did you get any takeaways from uh, World Conference this year, Rebecca? Yeah, I was not familiar with their process, and I was very heartened to read. It is a system where there's a delegate, and and I saw that where they said, like you said, some things were voted down, meaning it's not just a theocracy where someone at the top says, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have a new manual. No, these guys would vote on a new manual, the delegates representing the people who appointed them to be the delegates. So I thought that was extremely interesting. I also thought it was interesting how they talked about um, – a process through which you can form online congregations. So you yourself can put together a group um, and then you can possibly meet geographically. Ge I can't even speak tonight. Geographically, but you can also just have community online. So I think they just seem very forward thinking. They seem like they have lots of um, ideas for what can meet the actual needs of their people 
which we don't perhaps see so much in, in some other religious organizations. So I was impressed with what they were doing. And I wasn't so familiar with their process before, but I was impressed. Yeah, I mean, this really represents Joseph Smith's vision that he outlined in the Doctrine and Covenants. I think it was section 107, I believe, or maybe it was 111. His vision of how the church was supposed to operate with the, basically the checks and balances, kind of like the three branches of government um, that the American, um, you know, the, our American government is found, founded on. That's basically his, his philosophy was that the First Presidency, the Council of the Twelve Apostles, and the High Councils were all equal in authority. And then there would be common consent, there would be representation. This is basically Joseph Smith Jr.'s vision of how a church would be democratically operated um, is really come to fruition. And I do I find it to be very um, inspiring. So I, I love what I love what I'm seeing from there. And I wish that uh, we could take those ideas and incorporate it into the LDS church as well. Any last thoughts on this? No, I agree with you completely. And I'll be interested to see what they do going forward as far as implementing all of these things that seem really wonderful for the people in their organization going forward. I, I think it's it's really awesome. Yeah, uh, we know President Vizi is stepping down. We don't know who's the successor. It was not named in this world conference. We don't know that for a certain yet. That was one thing that I thought we might see, but we didn't see. But um, he, he's stepping down in like 20 months from now. So there's still plenty of time to figure out who is going to be leading the community of Christ. Now, our next article here, um, and this was uh, uh, published here on medium.com by one of my favorite uh, bloggers here. And his name is Korahor the Mormon. He published this on April 24th. And this is a very interesting article to me. Um, and maybe this is old news for some people, but this is the first time I came across it. And it's unveiling the truth, the hidden reality behind temple garment production. So he, he's got some leaked photos here on this uh, particular site here. And uh, what are we seeing in these photos here, Rebecca? Well, it looks like uh, some people are manufacturing garments, sort of an assembly line, sort of close quarters, but it definitely looks like garments are being manufactured. Oh, you can really tell in that picture. Look at that. Just uh, dozens and dozens of workers bent over uh, sewing machines uh, working on garment fabric. Yeah, absolutely. This uh, this is from uh, Taiwan. According to this, uh, according to this, and this is not confirmed. This is not 100 percent. This is kind of leaked information. Um, the, the investigation, they discovered bills of lading showing the imports of temple garments and related fabrics from Taiwan and China to Beehive Clothing in Salt Lake City going back to at least 2018. And uh, if you see the close-ups of the picture here of the garments, boy, it really looks like these are authentic garments made in China, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And these conditions here look pretty, um, I don't know, they look, uh, their people are shoulder to shoulder, their heads are down. A lot of people might say that this is, a, you know, um, sweatshop labor in cheap, you know, I, I'm sorry if, if this sounds uh, rude or insensitive, but cheap labor overseas where people mm -hmm. are usually typically not paid at a high rate. Yep. They don't have health care benefits. They have tough working conditions, working long hours. In, and some people might call that, you know, exploitative uh, conditions. And, you know, I never really thought to myself, Rebecca, I honestly never thought where my garments came from. I never gave it a moment's thought. I guess I'm just, you know, I have a bias or I guess I'm just clueless, but I never really considered this at all of where they came from. And that's I was just so shocked when I realized that, you know, it looks like garments, they're made in these tough conditions. That's just a big surprise to me. 
Well, I know that I had always heard and understood that garments um, are made from a gray fabric that is dyed white. And so, which is why after two or three washes, they return to their gray and why they actually have instructions that say don't bleach these because they can't be made whiter. They're actually gray. So I think I had an understanding that they possibly came from overseas, but I thought that was just the fabric. I thought that they were manufactured here. And I don't know if I thought and this is actually a good idea, I think. Why not give a pretty good wage to, say, Mormon moms, you know, her, or dads who need like an after hours job because they've had all those kids that Tucker Carlson told them to have. But honestly, it just seems, you know, this is if this is really true and these pictures are what they are, it just puts a very sort of a taint on the garment. You know, I mean, holy, sacred, beautiful, white. And yet someone is in not optimal conditions to make this. And, and it said a certain number of kilograms of, I think, garments were shipped every, I, I didn't know the time frame, but I looked it up and we're talking like 15 tons. The garments are coming from outside of the United States and they're coming here. So it's not just, oh, this is one of our supply arms. This is a massive amount of garments or garment fabric that is coming here. You know, I guess it would be different. I, I don't want to excuse it, but let us assume that the church was in the business of making clothing. And if you say, you know, if we don't make it overseas with these uh, conditions, then we'll go out of business because everyone else is making it over here. Yeah. And, you know, it's a doggy dog world. I'm not excusing it, but that would be one thing. But the problem with that argument is, is that the church is sitting on so many hundreds of billions of dollars that right. one would think that the most sacred clothing that is being made on this earth would be made here, right here in America, or at least in, in, in places where people can be given a decent wage, healthcare benefits, and maybe even like you said, to members of the church who need employment. Maybe you make these garments in Salt Lake City, people who are unemployed, you give them employment so that they can make these things. Why are we trying to save a few cents for something that is supposed to be the most sacred garment on the planet? And the optics are just so bad if exactly. this kind of things come out. I mean, if anything, if they really are concerned about money for whatever reason, make it a service mission. I know many people that are on service missions doing regular jobs that they should be paid for, you know, working 80 hours a week, yet it's a service mission. At least someone would feel good about that as they made garments on their mission. And then someone wearing garments would feel good that, you know, someone who thought it was a benefit for them to make it had made them. So I don't know, just optically, it looks terrible. And PR wise, you know, if someone really got a hold of this and ran with it, it just, it just, especially in the climate today, like it's a huge thing. Where are your goods manufactured? What are the conditions? It's a huge element to any company that they have to consider. Absolutely. Now, our next article here, or our next, uh, our next uh, topic here, is uh, we're getting a lot of news articles this week, but we try to get through all of them that we can in less than an hour. Um, our, uh, this has a website here uh, that was just launched. It's called AnsweringLDSCritics.com, and I believe it was just launched a very short time ago because there's a lot of um, critical websites out there that uh, you know. There's the CES letter. There's Mormon Think. There's letter to my there's letter to my wife. There's a number of even Mormon stories that have uh, basically different topics that you can research that give a very critical view of the church and point out flaws and problems. 
But this is one of the first ones I think that I've seen that really tries to give a systematic approach to, besides FAIR, LDS, FAIR, Mormon, um, this does the same type of things, but it is trying to answer the LDS critics uh, by giving CES letter responses, talking about uh, can we answer the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon? Can we discuss polygamy, uh, the racism in the church, the Book of Abraham, Kinderhook Place, Freemasonry, First Vision Accounts? It's a very slick looking website here. And, uh, it, it, you know, it talks about how LDS critics that they're paid, they're making money with anti-Mormons. Uh, they're very critical of the Mormon Stories Foundation and also of the um, uh, Mormon Stories CEO salary. And um, they talk about how, uh, you know, anti-Mormons, they are, you know, they're basically, it says that they're only in it for the money. And there's other organizations such as uh, Mormon Discussions. And, um, you know, it, I, if you had somebody who was doubting, you, if you have somebody who's doubting, you know, the church, you could send them to this website as a hope that, you know, it would be able to answer the critics, um, be able to answer their questions. Yeah, I see it more as a site. Um, yeah, and I came across it, too. <laughs> and in fact, on Mormonish podcasts, we're going to do an episode on this because oh, wow. we have a lot to say about this. Yeah, we've we've gone through that first article. It's really um, a criticism of what they call the critics. And I, it says right on it, it says, um, what motivates the LDS critics? And of course, they're talking about primarily like a John DeLynn or a Bill Real RFM, you know, some of the top critics. It says, do they seek to help people find Jesus Christ or do they distort the truth for financial gain? Are they pl planting seeds of doubt um, to profit from shaken faith? So it's basically a site where somebody who might be having questions, who maybe had stumbled on Mormon stories, might go here and be warned. You need to stay away from any of these, what I like to call post-Mormon thought leaders, who are simply putting out information, a different point of view. Uh, I don't think they care if you step away or change your faith at all, but they certainly want to put out some points of view some scholarship, some research that they've done, and one of their main um, one of their main sayings here is um, LDS critics: the more faith they shake, the more money they make. And of course, over on Mormonish podcast, we are going to explore the idea that um, the more faithful they make, the more money they take. Talking about people that stay in the church and give quite a bit of money. So it's an interesting site. There is a lot to it, but I feel its main purpose is simply to warn people against, you know, these evil, what they call critics, what I call post-Mormon thought leaders, and maybe misrepresent what their true intentions are. So that's coming from my perspective, of course, which is different from others. So, but it's an interesting site. We will see where it goes. It's very <laughs> slick looking site. It's very yes. professional. The, I yes. think the answers on it are about as good as you can get as far yes. as these answers are concerned. It does. They do uh, very, very vigorously. A number of the links take you back to the critics and they yes. seem to question the critics uh, of the church, their motivations. They want to yes. they want to make it seem like the critics are not sincere Exactly. And that they're only in it for the money, and uh, you know I can't I can't read anybody's hearts as to why it is that they do what it is that they do, and I don't really want to get into per people's personal motivations. For me, what is much more important is what do the facts say? What does the history say? What um, you know what 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 is the truth of it all? That's more important to me than trying to discern other people's motives. Any last thoughts on this? 
Um, just in a week or so, go over to Mormonish Podcast, and I'll tell you what I really think. <laughs> Our next episode here is a BYU transgender um, transgender policy here. This is the GOP senator here, our uh, Mormon senator here, Mike Lee. Uh, uh, this is an article that was on LGBTQ Nation, published on uh, May 1st, 2023. GOP senator attacks BYU professor for having a transgender child. So uh, this uh, BYU professor here, let me find you this tweet here. Uh, Mike Lee, he tweeted this out on April 13th that uh, a BYU professor, she actually spoke about her transgender eight-year-old child in class. And Mike Lee, he seemed to have taken some issue with that. He says, that's commonplace at most universities, but 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 BYU? question mark he seems to be saying that hey you know other universities they can talk about transgender things but we shouldn't bring that up at byu what are your thoughts on this uh this uh, this really went viral quite a bit this week yeah this is a really unfortunate situation and i think it's very similar in many ways to the patrick mason situation now this is a longtime teacher at byu she teaches a like a, a family living marriage type class where you talk about relationships and navigating family and she's told this story before and it's at the end of the unit where she's talking and she just mentions um her family and her dynamic and as we all learned in conference this last april president nelson actually seemed to come out and say we we celebrate talking about differences. We want people to communicate. We want people to come together, build bridges. And so this woman, she's been doing this for a while, this professor, she discusses her own family anecdotally to talk to the students about, you know, maybe you have friends that are LGBTQ. Maybe you have family members. You know, this is how we deal with them or not deal with them. That sounds terrible. This is how we communicate. This is how we love. And so apparently a newspaper on campus picked up on the fact that she'd mentioned her transgender child. And then Mike Lee picked it out of the newspaper, tweeted it, uh, went viral. And then, much like what happened to Patrick Mason, an awful lot of horrible backlash against this professor who was simply just talking about differences in family dynamics, which I guarantee you everyone has a difference in their family. And that is okay and perfectly fine and should be celebrated. So it's really unfortunate to see um, some people think it's their place. A lot of hatred, a lot of terrible uh, tweets and texts, and I think almost even threats to her safety. Um, as far as I know, the university has stood behind her because you can discuss yeah. LGBTQ as long as you do not promote in any way. You know, they have this right. very fine line. She's absolutely faithful LDS. And it's just really unfortunate that there are some more extreme to the right members who just have no place or tolerance for anything that's different. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Now, this is Professor Cohn here. She said at the end of her lesson, she just talked about her transgender child as an example of why Latter-day Saints need to be compassionate. And she said uh, that she has seen that uh, people have a need to belong in their own family and that there's a lot of pain associated with this particular issue. And she yeah. didn't promote transitioning or any other practice that was contrary to what the church teaches. So she wasn't advocating that six-year-olds should have, you know, radical surgery or start hormone treatment 
or anything like that. She just said, I have a transgender child and this is how we've been dealing with it. And this is one of the few times here that, you know, that the church has really uh, backed up uh, its BYU professors. Uh, it's amazing that Calvin Burke tweeted this out. He said, it's amazing and wonderful to see BYU doing something that it has heretofore never done. It's defending its professors against the scourge upon humanity that is Senator Mike Lee. So BYU stood behind their professor and said, you know, she didn't teach anything that was contrary to church policy or doctrines, and she's not trying to destroy faith. So um, no, she's good to go. And, um, you know, that, so that makes me wonder, why is Mike Lee trying to get involved with this situation since it's not even against church doctrine or practices? I guess just the mere idea of someone mentioning that transgender people exist is an affront to someone like, like Mike Lee. Yeah, and I think maybe he was just doing kind of a clickbaity little thing. I'm not even sure that he realized he was just going, what? You know, hmm just sort of a little aside what's more problematic uh, and i know the church must realize this there is this whole other side out there that are just absolutely just so far to the right and they consider byu as having been i don't know infiltrated um too liberal way too liberal and they're going to make their opinion known so there there are these groups out there that have no problem even making violent threats um, against a person like this. And I, I know the church knows that they're out there, but has never addressed anything like that. So you see these kinds of threats. These threats were made against Patrick Mason for what he did. These threats are made a woman like this. I know of situations where people have been invited on more nuanced podcasts and told you cannot, you know, threats have been made. So I think there are a lot of more progressive, nuanced Mormons that would like to talk about topics build bridges, discuss differences, but they may be nervous because there's this other side out there. I think it exists. Yeah, we just had somebody who just today who um, said that they couldn't come on this podcast because of the Strengthening Church Members Committee, and they run a very popular website. So yeah, the, the, the backlash is really real. And what you said about certain individuals in the church who don't want to acknowledge things and are very, very far, far right wing. I just wanted, this is a typical tweet that went associate that went along with this particular article. And this from, this was from at thoughtful saint who was uh, responding to Mike Lee and this whole entire professor Cohen BYU uh, transgender situation. And he tweeted out that there is no such thing as transgender. There are transvestites and people who experience gender dysphoria and people who suffer from malformed sexual biology. It's literally impossible to transgender, uh, transcend your gender, stop using dishonest language. And that is an extremely common sentiment that you get from um, a lot of, I don't know if you want to call them far right members of the church. I'm not sure what you mm -hmm. want to call them, but that's a very, very common view. And it seems to be one that uh, Mike Lee, um, I, I'm trying to guess here, but it seems like one that he um, would feel very comfortable espousing. I know. I'm surprised that I still wonder if he, he could not have foreseen probably what that happened. I just still feel like he was making a little, hmm, it seems to me that he should come out now and retract it. I'm so sorry I misspoke. I didn't mean it in that way. This is a wonderful woman, please. You know, I, I just feel like maybe he could do a lot if he would say that, but I, I don't know politically if now that's even in his best interest to do it. But I think it got away from him for sure. Now, the rumor mill here, and this has been churning for a couple of weeks, is that the uh, handbook transgender section in particular is going to receive an update. And that's uh, something that uh, I think is long awaited. In fact, you talked about in our coordination call how there was an eight-year-old trans baptism in your own ward or stake that's been put on hold pending a possible update that people have been waiting for for a while now. 
Yeah, this is a very interesting, again, Mormonish did a podcast on this that's dropping on Friday. There's so many current things coming out, you just have to keep up. But um, definitely Latter-day Stories, people have been investigating this, this change, this upcoming change to the handbook, which would address transgender individuals and not medically trans, you know, transitioned, which is in the handbook. This would be socially transitioned individuals, meaning um, if you change your pronouns or you dress differently or, you know, the social ways that you could um, transition, you would be denied ordinances, um, including baptism. And this anecdotally, a friend of a friend, there was an eight-year-old child who was ready to be baptized. The bishop was on board. The state president was on board. Few days before, it was supposed to happen last Saturday, um, higher-ups said, hold on that. That is not happening. Everybody was devastated, of course, including the bishop and state president. Apparently, they also really lobbied and said, no, this is not right. We need to baptize this child. And it didn't happen. So that tells me that there are changes coming and that this instance is one of the first because you usually hear it that way. It trickles out where something is not done. And then you find out later, a few weeks later, that there's going to be a, a handbook change. So. This, I believe, we can't even begin to imagine the ramifications of this. I feel that almost everyone I know has a transgender or tra transitioned um, family member, friend, loved one. I think this will be a time where people will really have to do some soul searching, much like the November 15th policy. I feel this will be like that, only different because everybody's seen it before knows what happens, the aftermath, the horrible aftermath, I think this just could have a ripple effect that's going to be huge if it really happens. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I think that something is definitely rumbling. I don't think all of these rumors are um, over nothing, and I think that we are going to see an update in the trans policy in the near future. But that's not the only uh, handbook policy, by the way, that was updated. And that's from this week here. A letter went out here on April 30th to brothers and sisters. And this, were, uh, this was in regards to uh, protecting children. And this was a pretty big step up here uh, from what we've had before. Uh, what is this letter that went out, what, uh, which was signed by the first presidency? What was this letter? Can you summarize what um, happened uh, in this letter here, Rebecca? That was yeah. right over the, it was right over the pulpit. It was on, right uh, over the pulpit. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested to get your take on it because I woke up on Sunday morning to some glowing, gushing, you know, social media posts about they finally done it. And I actually thought it was mandatory two-person bishops interviews. That's what I thought it was because some of these social media posts were saying, way to go, Sam Young, you know, who's been a champion of protecting youth for a long time, was excommunicated for that. Um, but as I read through it, it seemed to be very similar to what had been in place before. Um, dual leaders for classes, dual leaders for activities. The one thing that they did add is now virtually there has to be, you know, no, and I believe this is that court case that was a couple months ago where a bishop had been texting a young girl and, you know, it had blown up and he, he, you know, gone to court over it. So from what I can see from this letter, and maybe you can correct me, it mostly is a virtual instruction, um, no texting, zooming, that kind of stuff. And anytime there's any kind of, you know, I don't know, fireside online or something there. You have to make sure that your leaders are two or more deep. So I saw it as just kind of an addendum to what already existed. What did you notice? Were there, was there something I was missing? 
I think it's a very, very minor step forward. I don't think it is very earth shattering because it says, first of all, that at least two adults should be present at all uh, virtual and in-person church sponsored mm -hmm. activities. So that is a positive step. But then it's just said that leaders should avoid one-on-one -on -one contact with the child or youth unless they're uh, clearly visible to others. And that also includes avoiding one-on-one -on -one text messages to children. Yeah. It only says to avoid them. It doesn't prohibit them. So it right. is a very, very small step forward. Obviously, as we all know, much more could be done. But as we know with the church, when it comes to making changes forward, a lot of these things come, I don't know, line upon line, death upon death. It takes somebody to die before some <laughs> oh. of these changes come, uh, <laughs> before some of these changes are brought forward. So, And, and I also feel that um, a lot of change most change, I feel, comes from outside, like a Sam Young. And I know I have seen a lot of rumblings in post-Mormon social media about uh, parents going, why would the primary president text my child? How did they get, you know, and I understand the motivation of the primary te teacher or president. They're, you just want to connect with the child. You have been tasked with perhaps bringing them back, seeing if you re can reactivate. You drop off something, you might send a text message. But I also understand the parent's point of view. Why is this many times a stranger, you know, just a new leader texting my child? And is this confusing to my child? So I have seen that on social media, like a lot of rumblings on this. And now here it is in the handbook. So I feel that they do keep their eye on on what parents are saying. And, and nobody should be texting your child that you're not aware of, no matter how well-meaning, even though I do understand their motivation. And in most cases, I think it is very innocent. But this policy is great. Just don't do that anymore. Just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wish the language was a little stronger, but it yes. is a, it is a, a step in the positive direction. Uh, our next article here is, uh, you know, we, we covered this before last week, but this has also hit the mainstream news here. And this is the Riverside, California sex abuse case here. And this is an unprecedented level of uh, punitive damage that the, this particular woman was awarded when she was abused by her stepfather and also her mother uh, also um um, had was part of the settlement because she didn't report it. She, this woman, um, when she was a girl at the time, her stepfather was abusing her. She went to multiple Mormon leaders. They did not report it to police. Now this has hit the main. Uh, this has hit some mainstream news. I just want it's a two minute clip. I just um I just find it interesting because there's a lot of sex abuse claims out there. A lot of times they don't hit the mainstream media, but that this has. So let me play this for you and look at your thoughts. Riverside Superior Court jury awarded a woman. $2.28 billion for the sexual abuse she endured for years committed by her stepfather. You said billion with a B? I said billion with a B. Wow. Yeah, the woman sued for damages against her stepfather, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and her mother, who she said knew about the sexual abuse, but did nothing, nothing to mm. protect her. The huge jury award of $836 million in damages and $1.44 billion and punitive damages is largely symbolic and unlikely to ever be fully paid. The stepfather admitted to molestation and rape in a sworn deposition testimony, but didn't appear at trial. This abuse occurred in their home and at the property of the Mormon church in which both Doe's, as in Jane Doe's, mm -hmm. parents were active members. Yeah, that was billion with a B. That is a, lot a, of money. a rim rocking number to me. Yeah. And it is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to bring anyone else into the situation or any other uh, a religion into this situation. I'm just going to stick with this one mm -hmm. uh, to to make that kind of 
uh, settlement makes a big statement. Uh, and I, I would be interested to see what the number for, I'm trying not to say other religions, I mean, but there have been. Report. You can say it. We family. In the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. They have dealt with molestation. Yeah. And I haven't seen a number that big. And yet there is a place called the Vatican that has more money than some countries. Mm -hmm. And so that is an interesting thing to happen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is probably one of the biggest numbers, one of the biggest judgments I've that seen. I've ever seen. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and who knows, you know, um, what this might signal to other survivors. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, maybe it might, uh, you know, encourage them to, you know, summon the courage, you know, to bring forth their cases. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's a shame how many adults knew about this. I mean, yes. you know, the molestation, uh, according to the report, started when she was five years old. Mm. Right. Uh, and uh, people in positions of power and influence and authority did mm -hmm. nothing. If anything, mm -hmm. they tried to, to shame her. Right. They tried to silence her. Right. Right. And mm -hmm. that happens far too often, not just in you know, the Catholic Church, but it happens in a lot of institutions. And so, you know, we all have to not just look for the signs, mm -hmm. see something, say something, do something. What are your thoughts here, Rebecca? Well, my first thought is they do not know that the Mormon Church also has as much money as a small country. Um, they have no idea. I think a lot of people would be stunned. I think uh, as that becomes more clear on national news programs, uh, more people will find out. My other thought is what a difference in trying a case in California and trying a case in Arizona. I wonder That's what the difference could be. I wonder what what is Arizona? I'm sorry, I'm being facetious, but again, a huge difference. Now, I read another article about this that was just written by, you know, a news source, and they talked about being inside the courtroom, and they mentioned that the girl herself, now a teenager, sat with a teacher, a trusted teacher, someone that had helped her on one side of the court. And on the other side were, it sounds like from this article that the father was not in court, but the mother the bishop and many ward members. Yes, I said it. Many ward members sat on the other side against this girl. And if you look at these court cases on abuse, unfortunately, it seems like the church is never sitting on the right side or testifying for the right side. They're never on the side of the person who has been abused. For whatever inst institutional reason that is, it's just so unfortunate. In fact, on some post-Mormon social media, some people brought up an idea. If you've heard of BACA, Bikers Against Child Abuse, oh, where okay. bikers will, you know, big, scary, ride their bikes to trials and things to, to surround these children or people that have been abused and just show them, you know, we're big, we're scary, and we're going to protect you. Somebody said, can't we come up with a post-Mormon kind of a baka where we, we would just go and attend and say, you're loved, you did the right thing. I mean, I know there's probably no realistic way to do that, but it's so disheartening to see everyone else lined up on the other side of the room and the girl with her her teacher not her religious leader who you would think would be the first one to embrace someone in this situation is your church family and that's not the case here so very disappointing yeah this is a really really sad case and you know it's, it's interesting to see how people who don't have much of a background in religion and mormonism and and things like that see how they approach it they just see this fantastically 
um, huge number that, you know, we've never seen anything really like this before. Right. A two, over a $2 billion judgment for a single case. That's just a real um, earth shatterer. Now, you did talk about the Arizona case. Now, that case is still ongoing, by the way. We don't know what the um, final award of that is going to be. Um, I, I can go out on a limb here and say it's not going to be $2 billion. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, there is a big difference in where these places, these uh, cases are tried. And um, it's a very, very sad case. Um, uh, let's hope that some of those changes that we saw that were put forward in that letter can go towards reducing these uh, types of situations from happening in the future. Now, our next article here, uh, Rebecca, is really in your neck of the woods here because the church, <laughs> to my understanding here, r- r- rolled out a new program here in the last, I believe it was in the last week, but it hasn't been very long at any rate. And it's a new program here that's called the Church Mentoring Program. Now, we've had visiting teaching, we've had ward teaching, we've had ministering, we've had a lot of different types of these programs, but this is a very interesting program, especially for you considering that your son is currently serving a full-time mission. So the mentoring program here, it says that it, so it's for um, people who are going to be shepherding return missionaries when they come back in the immediate aftermath after either a service missionary, I believe, or a full-time proselyting mission. And it says that you've been assigned to help a recently returned missionary successfully transition from life as a full-time missionary to life at home. Returned missionaries had many experiences while serving as a missionary that have taught them how to live principles such as faith in Jesus Christ, hard work, diligence, and service. As a mentor, your role is to help this returned missionary continue to live these principles. So I assume that when your son comes home, um, what is he, about a year away, that he'll be assigned a mentor as part of this program, right? Yeah, it's very interesting, and I certainly understand why they're doing this. The statistics are, I would think, alarming from the church point of view that a lot of return missionaries, well, number one, they return with depression or mental illness or trouble adjusting. Others step away from the church, like within six months of their mission. There really are statistics to back that up. And so I think this program is something where, you know, a trusted word adult, a faithful member, will shepherd this missionary, help them make this transition. Now, I hope these mentors will get training. I hope (laughs) that they're just not the well-meaning lady down the street. I hope they will get some training to be able to talk to kids that age and see what they need because a lot of missionaries come home with a lot of trauma. There's a lot of things that happened. It's just a supercharged situation on a mission. So I can see the benefit in that way of having somebody that perhaps has been trained um, to talk to somebody. The other side of it, of course, is that I see, you know, of course, in my son's situation, I don't I try not to talk about him very much because, you know, respect what he's doing. But he will come home to a household where, you know, it wouldn't be considered a faithful household. Right. A lot of us are post Mormons here in our house. And so in that case, he probably would really, really like to have somebody that he feels has his back. However, (laughs) I've got his back. (laughs) You know what I mean? I support him in what he's doing. I'm just fine with him on a mission and attending church and I will support all of that. So the idea that someone, a person needs to be inserted in between me and my missionary um, is slightly problematic to me. Maybe I'll do a Mormonish episode. (laughs) I understand why they're doing it. I understand how it could be a good thing. But again, I've had this situation with another son where a mission president inserted a lot of goals for my son that my son still really adheres to, you know, without maybe going over these goals with, you know, family who know him better. Anyway, that's another story. But again, it's it's a gray area, you know, support for the missionary. Yes. 
um, support at the cost of relationship with family or the fact that family is the one who should be the one in your corner, maybe that can be a little complicated. So I'll wait and see how it turns out. But I think they have good intentions with the program because people come back troubled and people are leaving. So they're trying to give them a lifeline. So I will say that. Yeah, I mean, it used to be unheard of to have a return missionary leave within mm -hmm. a few months of his mission. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to take, you know, some people who would leave the church, it used to take them years or even decades after being a return missionary. And we're seeing people come back. You know, you talked about the mental health problems. You know, one of the problems with serving stateside mission in the last couple of years is the lack of baptisms. The church has mm -hmm. only grown like 50,000 in the entire United States, where half the missionary force is in the United States. So when you see the level of futility of the current church missionaries and that, that your son is facing, you know, that really, that really, um, it doesn't number on you saying, you know, I was out there for two yeah. years and I only baptized one or even two people. I just, the level of rejection is really stunning. You also talked about the plan that they make in the last couple of weeks of a, of a missionary service, they will create um, a little thing that's called a plan. And of course they generally do that by themselves and not really with their family. And so when they get back with their family, their plan doesn't necessarily align with what their family is going to do. So, you know, the transitions between being a full-time missionary and coming back to enter the civilian world or whatever, it is the, the normal world it's very very challenging I, I hope that this mentor program as you said is the people who are assigned it's very important that you don't just have your q anon guy from down the street as your exactly. son's mentor you know that's <laughs> exactly. not what that's not going to yeah. do them any favors no that's what i'm saying i hope they're vetted and i hope that they have training to be able to deal with young adults because it's a whole different world now for young adults Yes, it definitely is. Now, uh, we've got two last articles here. This is kind of an interesting one here. Pornhub locks all of Utah from its site. So uh, the people in Utah who visit Pornhub will now be greeted by um, uh, someone who's going to tell them to ask their representatives to change the age verification law. And this was the brainchild here of your governor, uh, Governor Cox. You know, he's cracking down on TikTok. He's cracking down on pornography. He's cracking down on everything here, Rebecca. Yeah, he is. You know, I made this prediction a while ago. We did conference predictions back in the beginning of April on Mormonish, and, and we said social media is becoming such a problem for the church, especially TikTok, all of that. Um, and of course, they introduced this bill, which would not allow children under 18 at all to get on with a lot of without a lot of protocols from parents. And I have a feeling it's not just the governor. I have a feeling it's, you know, some other influences um, in mm. the state. I'm not going to name names, but I feel there are influences. So what they didn't understand, I don't think what a lot of grown people understood, is that this requirement to prove that you're a certain age on certain websites like Pornhub, they're not having any of it. They're not going to request that from their users because that's not how they operate. So when you try to log on to Pornhub, course I'm saying this anecdotally <laughs> you'll be greeted with hypothetically yeah hypothetically I should say that's right um, you'll be greeted with a message that says please talk to your legislature because we're not going to require driver's license that's not how we let people on so I think it was Tuesday where a great outcry in the state of Utah arose um, nobody could get onto Pornhub now there is a way to get on you have to create a virtual private network and uh, yes, this next article that we found shows that overnight skyrocketing searches for how to create this special VPN number uh -oh. so you can get back onto Pornhub. I don't know if it's a coincidence. Um, it might be. 
But apparently, you know, and I even saw, I, it must have been made up, but somebody said, I just got this text from my bishop. I am the ward tech consultant. And he said, so hypothetically, how would one create a VPN number? I can't imagine that was a real text from a bishop. It might have been. I don't know. But definitely people are scrambling and there's a national spotlight on it for sure. There's humor to it, of course. Yes, I'll explain this. So there are two things that I know really well in life, and that is Mormonism and Star Trek. So I've created a group called Trexmo post-Mormon Star Trek fans, and we like to just, you know, kind of shine a spotlight on current events through Star Trek. So this, of course, is uh, Spock and Kirk and Bones, and Kirk is saying, are there any tech nerds in the pre-scorum that might know how to create one, meaning a VPN number, right? So, of course, all in good fun, but but it's true. Look at that article you just put up. It's going through the roof of people Googling, how do I do this? Trying to find out. I have a friend who said, I'm techie. I'm putting up a billboard. I'm starting a business. Give me a hundred bucks. Yeah. Again, Trexmo. Here we go. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Anyway, this is Captain Kirk. And he says, please, God, help me figure out how to set up a VPN. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you do make fun, but then again, it's like you're a grown adult. You should be able to get on the site that you want. And then you have all kinds of helpful people saying, oh, well, forget Pornhub. Go on this and this and this and this. A little less reputable, less, you know, more dicey. So unfortunately, it may possibly drive people to places where they might have some problems. with That's the problem. I don't know. Is that experts have said that age verification does not work to protect children online because it only drives them to uh, places that don't enforce it, that that have scarier. Yeah, that have even more harmful yep. uh, material that is less yep. less safe spaces where they can be yep. preyed upon. And it only um, exposes adults to more risk of identity theft, because if mm-hmm. you have to verify it, your identity and put in a bunch of information that that information yep. can be stolen by, um, you know, that 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 information can be stolen by, you know, bad, bad actors. So it's like, yep. you know, and there's data hacks, there's extortion. There's just no easy solutions to this. But I can tell you one thing, Spencer W. Kimball, he is vindicated in this entire thing because he was so anti-pornography. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of church leaders who are, are rejoicing in this because this is really taking us back to like a 1980s mentality, which is where pornography was supposed to be the root of all evil. You know, you think about yeah. Ted Bundy, he said that he committed his heinous murders because of pornography. And even Spencer Kimball said that the um, uh, the abortion epidemic, he said this in general conference, was a result of X-rated movies that were legalized in the United States and people going to X-rated movies and ended up having abortions. So this is I mean, this is all like a 1980s, really, uh, Utah culture that is, you know, we're taking something that's 40 years um, previous and we're trying to put it into the modern day. And, um, you know, I just wonder how it's all going to play out. No, exactly what you said. It does not work in the 21st century because there are greater evils, like you described, very disreputable sites and and identity theft. All of that is going to happen as a result of this. So, yeah, Spencer W. Kimball, he had some weird stories. Look some of them up, weird stories about pornography. He had some really strange experiences. I'll just say that. Yeah, if you also come over to our Patreon site, you can. Um, I have some bonus content about Spencer Kimball, who I was in the ward with him when I was in the Monument Park Second Ward when I was growing up. He was uh, he was my neighbor, and I have some uh, interesting stories there on our Patreon site for you. 
um, really, really interesting stuff. That that is take us to our final article here. This is a little bit small on the screen here, but you know, um, somebody was publishing this that uh, in the last five years since Russell Nelson has been the church president for just a little bit over five years now, and all of the terms that have been renamed is really quite a bit. Mormon Church is now the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormonism is now the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. The pre-existence is now the pre-mortal life. Free agency is now what's free agency now? Moral agency, right? It's moral, moral agency. Right. There's a huge difference there. These <laughs> seem like they're subtle changes, <laughs> but they're not subtle changes. They're very interesting if you really think about what they mean. Right. Yeah. So um, like uh, auxiliary leaders are now general stake ward officers. The mutual is now youth activities. Uh, probation is now membership restrictions. We don't excommunicate. We withdraw the membership. Uh, the area authorities are now area 70s. Investigate. And this is the biggest one for me. Investigators, they're now friends. I, I That's yeah. the one I can't. I can't do that. I can do some of these other ones. I can't do that. Well, I will tell you why they've done that. And I just, before I came on Mormon News Roundup, I was on a show with the Backyard Professor where we talked about um, are Mormons Christian? And we talked about a lot of the ways that Mormonism is trying to appear to be more in mainstream Christianity. And some of this terminology, that's what mainstream Christianity uses. Friends, they talk about that. Do Bible study with your friends. Let's share the good news. Missionaries use those words now, and you see that reflected there. So it's all to appear a little more just uh, palatable and normal in the Christian landscape. Yeah, so there's been a lot of LDS terminology changes here, but Rebecca, I don't think that they've gotten to all of them that need to be gotten to. Believe it or not, I have a few here for you that... Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that we ought to change even more names, believe it or not. And um, uh, I just well, it run... is an ongoing restoration. So <laughs> yes, we should change that. <laughs> That's right. It's an ongoing restoration, which is continuing, which is why we're renaming so many things. So I've got a few terms here that I thought that I'd run past you. This is just. My, my ideas, you know, they could be good, they could be bad, you know, for our okay. listeners out there, you know, if you come on over, sure. we drop all of these on YouTube, uh, if you could uh, drop us a like, drop us a subscription, also let us know your thoughts on um, on these pro pro proposed LDS name changes, I'd appreciate that. So the first one up here is profit, and the thing about it, Rebecca, is that profits, you know, the, the primary job for a profit is to prophesy, but we don't right. really do that anymore so you know we kind of it's a little confusing so if we have a prophet who doesn't prophesy i just thought that we could rename that as a tax fraud accessory i don't is that well is that, that is accurate that is i mean yeah i mean why it's accurate i'll say well, that do you prefer tax fraud accessory or tax fraud accomplice which one i think we'll go with an acronym the church likes that the tfa that's the okay. just say that yeah that would that would be more accurate because a prophet is technically supposed to prophesy and they're I, I, unless I'm missing it, I'm not seeing that. Okay, so that's number one. Okay, uh, what about a seer? You know, in the Book of Mormon, you're supposed to translate yeah. holy books of scripture, yeah. put your face in the hat. You know that, but I, I'm not seeing that any anymore either. So that's why I'm saying a seer. I, I've got a, a couple of suggestions here for you. We'll just call it a lawyer mm -hmm. uh, or a businessman. And really, when it comes down to it, in order to be a top quality seer, you do need to have a seven-figure net worth. Oh, I think you've hit it on the head right there. Absolutely. That would clarify it, too, because seers, that's kind of the tricky one to define. Or how about Revelator? You know, it's uh, been since Joseph F. Smith back in, what was that, uh, 1917, 1918, since we mm -hmm. got the last section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So it's been like 100 and, I don't know, what is that, 105 years? So Revelators, they're supposed to reveal things, but they're not really doing that anymore. So that's why I want to rename the word Revelator. And uh, let me run this past you. Let's just call it a shell company manager. 
There you go. Or actually, I believe the chosen term by the church is clone company. <laughs> it's not a real name. No one in the SEC has heard of a clone company. No one in any kind of financial position has heard of it. Okay. But it sounds a lot more nice than Shell. So I think either Shell Company Manager or Clone Company Manager, or just clone for short, maybe. Yeah, I think I, that, that works. I think that that's that, uh, a clone CEO, actually. Yeah. That's that I sounds that good. Works. Okay, I'll have yeah. to update the slide there. And we also have apostles, and but we, you know, apostles, they were supposed to be personal representatives of Jesus, you know. But the thing is, is, you know, we have Dallin Oaks who said that no one in the first presidency of the Council of the Twelve, they've seen Jesus and no one that he's aware of. And we have lots of prophets who've gone, gone, gone in times past, you know, from Joseph F. Smith to others to Heber J. Grant, who all said, no, they haven't seen Jesus. They don't know anybody who has. That's why I kind of want to maybe rename the word apostle here. And uh, how do you like this? Instead of apostle, we'll just call him an anti-gay rights activist. There you go. So you're 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 sort of talking about what they actually are doing as opposed to what they're supposed to do. So right. I, I, I think that, that clarifies. Now, I got this picture yeah. here out of the Liahona, and I always get these two. Oh. Is this Suarez or is this uh, Gong? I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh wow! Okay. I'll, I'll have to go back and I have to go back and figure out who that is. I can't remember who that is off the top of my head. Yeah, now, it's hard with a mask. A yeah, it face. is hard. It's hard to tell. It is now the General Authority 70s. That's kind of a confusing term. A lot of people don't really know the difference between area authority, general authority. So it can all be very confusing. That's why I want to simplify this for it. And I'm just going to call that a water bottle crusher. And there it is. That that clears up any confusion because that's what they are. That's yeah, perfect. That, that seems to be the primary job. And also at Area Authority 70, well, that's just somebody who memorized the church handbook. I call him a general a general handbook zealot. That's that seems good. to be more like accurate. Yeah. Now, the General Relief Society president, that's kind of a long term here. You know, uh, I think we can shorten that up a little bit and we'll just call that um, a grandson homicidal storyteller. That's a little shorter. That is a supercharged title. We'll have to think about that one. I'm not sure. Okay, that's that may be a miss. I may need to revisit. But it is yeah, more accurate. might need to. It is accurate. It is accurate. accurate. But maybe we don't need to go there. Okay, well, may, I'll have to. Maybe I'll have to rethink <laughs> that one. How about a state president, though? A state president. We'll just call him a uh, Nemo SEC fine letter recipient. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what happened. Yeah, so many yeah. state presidents are. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a little more accurate. And a bishop there, well, um, I just call a bishop a Curtin McConkie scapegoat. <laughs> that's exactly right. That hotline, throw him under the bus, Curtin McConkie scapegoat. Perfect. Yeah, and there's there's Curtin himself putting up a portrait of himself. Yeah, so I just call him a Curtin McConkie scapegoat. It's like an infinity mirror in the temple. <laughs> exactly. Now, the Strengthening Church Members Committee, that is a long, uh, that's, a, that's a doozy. Let's just call that, let's rename that and call that Big Brother. Yep, everybody knows what that means, and it reflects exactly what it is. Perfect. Exactly. You know, this is from uh, uh, Orwell's 1984. I took a clip out of that. Uh, now, now, I didn't know if you knew this, but there is an official President Nelson fan club, but that's kind of a long title. I, have, I can shorten it up here for you. I'll just call it the Covenant Path. That makes sense. That's yeah, absolutely. perfect. Mm -hmm. That's simpler. And the first council in the young men's presidency, that is exceptionally long, Rebecca. Let's, uh, let's also rename that. Let's just call that unhinged. You know, that's very simple. Just two syllables, unhinged. It, and it'll work for the current the current first counselor, I think, as long as he's in. Yep, it absolutely will. Yes, uh, that's a very, very simple here. Finally, we all also have this one. And if you listen to General Conference last time, you'll, you'll get this one. The LDS girl wearing one heck of a swimsuit on a French beach. Well, we're just going to call this an anti-Nephi gongite. Okay, so 
I'm a, yeah, th those are very, I, I think it works. I don't know. I don't that's I think just, it works. I think I it's catchy. I like yeah. that. Gongite. Yeah, that's a great word. I think anti-Nephi gongite. Gongite. Yep. yep exactly. I got it. Yep. Absolutely. And then finally, we have a Mormon News Roundup podcaster. That's that's also kind of long. That's uh, I'm just going to call that a major victory for Satan. Yeah, I think you kind of have to. I think that's kind of a given right there. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for ruminating with me on the Great and Spacious Beehive. Really appreciate you being here. Yeah, there's, there was a lot of news that we covered, and I think we did it pretty well. And I hope that your viewers and listeners uh, appreciated and enjoyed what we had to say. And I hope they comment. You know, I, that's part of it. You weigh in, too, on, on what you heard here and what you think. Absolutely. Uh, shout out to Weird Alma for this uh, episode's music. And uh, remember, remember, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. So long. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for, for supporting us on Patreon.com.